Well, today is promotion day here at Meadowbrook Baptist Church, a day in the life of our church that signals new programs, new classes, and the start of a new school year. This is also the beginning of a new message series on Sunday morning. We have been journeying through the summer through the Old Testament book of Malachi, seeking to know God through biblical worship, knowing what it means to accurately and biblically worship God as the people of God. And today we shift to our second major emphasis, which is discipleship and growing together as followers of Christ. And so we're going to journey for the next few weeks through the uh, New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 4, walking through Ephesians chapter 4. And my personal belief is that the more we encounter God... The more we know God through biblical worship, the more we come in contact with Him through His Word and worship that is centered on His Word, the greater our desire to follow Him is. The greater our desire to know Him through His Word and and to follow after Him as His people. And so this is a natural overflow of encountering God through biblical worship, the desire to know Him more and more, and to grow together with the people of God and our walk with Christ. So I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, just some brief background information. But Paul is the New Testament character who wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, among a number of other letters that he wrote. But according to Acts chapter 19, he had spent two years in and around Ephesus, getting to know Jews and Gentiles there and instructing them in beliefs and practice. And so that's his purpose for writing the letter to the Ephesians just several years later. He's writing to instruct the people of God in the church at Ephesus in beliefs and practice. And so he follows kind of his his typical structure in his letter writing. He begins with a series of chapters on beliefs, on doctrine, or on theology. And then he transitions from that at some point in his letter uh, to the practical outworkings or the practical overflowing of those beliefs into everyday life, into right living. And so that's the the pattern that he follows in Ephesians. Uh, And in in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he transitions between the two. He's just spent chapters 1 through 3 describing beliefs, proper Christian doctrine, proper Christian beliefs. And and then our passage for this morning, the first six verses of chapter 4, is a transition from those beliefs into right living, which should be very natural for us because our beliefs inform what we do. What we believe should inform what we practice. And we'll see from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 this morning, that our position in Christ should lead to unity within the church. Our position or our status in Christ should lead to unity within the church. Look with me now at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, 
bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's stop right there for just a few minutes. But this section, specifically verse 1, is tied to the previous three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians by the word then in verse 1. Or as some translations have it, therefore. And so what Paul is now going to say in this chapter and in the chapters that follow, he's going to say what it looks like to live in light of who you are. And so he's been, he's been talking in the first three chapters about beliefs, about doctrine, about theology, namely what it means to, to live in and through Jesus Christ, to be in Christ. And now this is the overworkings of that, the overflow of that. What does that mean for everyday living? And so that is our question for this morning. What does it mean to live in light of who we are in Christ? And he begins with this This general instruction, verse 1, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And that calling is the same calling that all Christians have ever received, past, present, and future. It is the call to follow Jesus Christ. That is our calling. If you know God, if if you've been saved, if you've been forgiven of sin, then your calling is to know God through Jesus Christ, and to live in light of who you are in Jesus Christ. But notice, notice the voice of that verb. To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It's not an active voice verb. It's a passive voice verb. In other words, this whole Christian, Christianity thing, this whole following Christ thing, is not something that you came to all on your own, that God was involved in this process. And that's what's being communicated here, that God placed this call on your life. Now live in response to that. God called you to know him through Jesus Christ, and you responded by trusting in Christ for salvation. Now, Paul is saying, live in light of that. Live in light of who you are in Jesus Christ. And so what does that look like? It looks like loving other believers in the church. We see in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter that the Christian calling requires Christians to love one another. The Christian calling requires, demands Christians to love one another in the church. Back up to the beginning of verse 1. Notice how Paul describes himself as he enters into this, this section of his letter. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord. This is very similar. This is the same way he described himself in chapter 3, verse 1. He said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. In other words, Paul is not writing some abstract way of living for other believers. He is not talking about a general Christian principle to love other believers that is for all other believers. He is writing about something that he is living out presently in his own life because he is undergoing the the pain and the hardship and the humiliation of being imprisoned for his faith in Christ and for the overflowing of that faith as he seeks to love other believers by spreading the gospel among them. 
And so what he says carries a certain gravity, a certain strength, because he's writing from his own experience. He's writing from his own practice. He's writing from his own efforts to live in light of the calling he has received. And so what does that look like? And this is where verses 2 and 3 come into place. What does it look like to live in light of your calling, to live worthy of your calling in Christ? It means to live with humility and gentleness and patience and love for each other. Now the first two of those, humility and gentleness, are coupled together here. And just like it is in our day, humility was not a very desirable or admirable quality in the first century. In fact, the word for humility very rarely comes up in the first century Greek, the language of the New Testament, outside of the Bible. And when it does, it has markedly negative connotations. It is not something to be championed. It is not something that that draws other people's attention. Just like today in our own society, this is not something that, that our world, that our society, that our culture values as we're supposed to value in the church. Nevertheless, this is the way that the Son of God is described in Scripture. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So in a day, just like today, when humility was not admirable, was not a quality to strive for, the Son of God, God in the flesh, humbled himself, not only becoming a creature like us, but becoming a servant in and laying down his life as a sacrifice for us. And in that same chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, we are told as believers to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to consider others better than ourselves. And to not only look to our own interests, but to look to the interest of others. And so what is humility in the life of a believer? What's well, not selfish ambition It's not conceitedness. It is putting others before ourselves. And in that same same tone, in that same vein, the word for gentleness here in Ephesians chapter 4 is like politeness. It carries the connotation of, of considering others before ourselves. So what does it mean to live in light of our calling in Christ? It means to to be completely humble. And to be gentle, not looking to our own interests first, but looking to the interests of others and unifying around those truths. Next, we're commanded to, to be patient and to bear with one another in love as the people of God in the church. And because this letter was written to the church at Ephesus, because it was written to churchgoers, Christians in the church, It certainly means to to be patient with difficult people in the church. 
And the reality is there are difficult people in church, in every church. Meadowbrook Baptist Church is full of imperfect people because all people are sinners. But our task as the people of God who are living in light of our calling in Christ is to bear with one another in love, to be patient with one another, even when circumstances seem to lead us in another direction. And not only are we to to put up with each other, but we're to bear with one another in love. To love each other and to consider others better than ourselves. And the reason we can do that, the reason that's possible for us is because we as Christians, as followers of Christ, have something that the world does not have. And we see what that is in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is something different about genuine followers of Christ. We have something available to us and in us that is not available to in the same way and is not living in others in the world, and that is the Spirit of God. When you trust in Christ for salvation, when you repent from your sins and and you come to know God and be reconciled to God through Christ, then the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in you. You become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Now I know that's wild stuff. That's crazy to believe that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, by his spirit lives in creatures, people, the people of God. But that is what the Bible teaches. That God loves his people so much and desires to fellowship with them and to be in right relationship with them and to know them so much that that he sends his spirit to live among us and in us. And that is a bond that trumps every difference that we have. That is a bond or fastener that, that supersedes age and social class and race and language and differences in personality Yes, even differences in college football affiliation in the state of Alabama. We have something as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of Christ, that brings us together like nothing else can. And that can never be fully broken. But because we are still sinners and we experience the effects of sin in this world, we are to make every effort to maintain that bond of peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. For believers in Christ, the Spirit of God unites us together in a way that cannot be fully broken. And because I'm a guy, when I think of a bond or a, a fastener, that cannot be fully broken. Some of you know where I'm going with this because you've seen the title of this message. I think of Gorilla Glue. Now, there are not many things, let's be honest, there are not many things that simply sound more masculine than Gorilla Glue. 
And I trust that many of you men, like myself, have taken care of a household project or two with just a little dab of Gorilla Glue. And as I reminisced about the incredible strength of Gorilla Glue this last week, I found myself on their website, www.gorillatough.com. And while there, I saw this little tab at the top of the webpage that said, Tough Stories. So, I clicked on Tough Stories and began to read some of the most recent examples of people in real life using Gorilla Glue to bond things together. And I have to be honest, I've actually never used the Gorilla Tape, which is like a roll of duct tape, except two or three, maybe four times as expensive. (laughs) But after, after reading this story, I may have to buy a roll or two. And I want to share this with you. This, the title of this particular illustration is Car Bumper. My wife went over one of those parking spot dividers, not a good start, ripping my front bumper half off. After a couple of attempts of rigging it back together and it falling apart after a few days, I grabbed a roll of Gorilla Tape. This is where I imagine kind of the angels in the background singing the hallelujah chorus or something like that. Joe says, I've, I've never used it before. I taped the bumper back in place, not overdoing it. I used approximately 10 to 15 feet of tape. <laughs> this was about five months ago. To this day, get this, it has survived 100 plus degree weather in the Chicago land area, 65 mile per hour continuous highway speeds, and approximately seven thunderstorms. I still have never replaced or repaired the current tape job from five months ago. Thank you for ending my frustration, Gorilla Tape. Signed, Joe. Now, I wanted to share that with you this morning because I honestly think I have seen that car driving around somewhere in Shelby County, Alabama, and I was hoping one of you could help me find it. But in all seriousness, as believers in Christ, as members of God's household, as part of the church of God, we have something that unites us that brings us together, that bonds us together, that fastens us together as believers that cannot fully be broken. And we as believers are called to live in light of that position. The Christian calling requires believers to love one another. Our position in Christ should lead to unity in this church. So let's be characterized by unity as Meadowbrook Baptist Church. Let's be characterized as people that love one another, who put each other first, who make every effort to unite together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said earlier that in Paul's writings, in his letters, he often puts beliefs before practice. 
He tells us what we ought to believe as the people of God, and then he tells us how we're to live in light of that belief. And Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is the transition between those two elements in the book of Ephesians. But in this particular passage, for some reason, Paul reverses that practice. He tells us in verses 1 through 3 what it means to live in light of our position in Christ, to be completely humble and to be gentle and, and to be patient with one another and to bear with one another in love and to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then in verses 4 through 6, he gives us the theological basis or the foundation from which we're to act like that. And so look with me now as we move rather quickly into verses 4 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We see in verses 4 through 6 of this passage that the nature of God and of our faith provide the basis for our unity. The nature of God and of our faith provide the basis or the foundation for our unity as believers with one another. Now notice, notice the word that is repeated over and over and over again in verses 4 through 6. Seven times Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the word one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Clearly, Paul is making a point here in verses 4 through 6 about oneness. Now, even if we don't know what that is, we know that he is, he is making some kind of point by his repetition of the word one. And the passage that I read earlier this morning from Ephesians chapter 2 provides a contextual lens for us to understand what that point is that he's making. So I invite you to turn back a page in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. And picking up about halfway through verse 15. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. His purpose, talking about Christ, was to create in himself one new man out of the two. Talking about Jews and Gentiles, two opposing people groups at that time. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came... And preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. The one body that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, is the same one body that he refers to in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. And that is the body of Christ, the church. The universal church comprised of all genuine believers in Jesus Christ. Now, we are one local church, and this is God's design to set up local, church, local churches like Meadowbrook Baptist Church. But all Christians are part of a universal church, a combining of all believers in Jesus Christ, of all those that have been saved from sin and the effects of sin and that have been reconciled to God through Jesus. So Paul is saying You stand united as believers because there is only one church that holds all believers together. 
And in the same way, there is one Spirit, one Holy Spirit that works in the lives of all believers to unite them together around the core truths of their faith. And this one Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, is the same one Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, for through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. So, because there is only one body of Christ and because there is only one Spirit of God that, that works in all believers to keep them united in the gospel of Christ, be united around those core truths of your faith. And likewise, there is one hope to which all believers are called, and that is the one hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone of the church, the foundation of the church. The church is one foundation, Jesus Christ, her Lord. And there's one baptism, which is the outward expression of identifying with the crucifixion and the the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is one God and Father of all, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, who is over all and through all and in all. There is one God, one creator, one ruler, one savior, one God almighty, the only true God that, that holds all things in his hands. And so as a church, because the church is built on all, all these examples of oneness, one hope, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Be united with fellow believers in the church. We stand united because God is a God who by his spirit has drawn us together as his people. As a church, we serve and we worship a Trinitarian God. It's a foundational truth of our faith and of scripture's representation of God that God is one, one God in three persons. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. And we see a clear reference to that right here in verses 4 through 6. There is, there is one Spirit, one Holy Spirit, there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, and there is one God and Father of all. And the Trinitarian God serves as the perfect illustration, an example of being united together in oneness, in perfect harmony. Although Three distinct persons of the Godhead, they are united together. God is united together in all things. And as the people of God, we should be united together with other believers in all things. As the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, we as the church ought to stand as one with one another. Church, knowing God through Jesus Christ changes you. Experiencing peace with God through salvation in Christ results in life transformation. You cannot genuinely experience that and remain the same person. When you do, God takes up residence in you, the Spirit of God indwelling you. And Scripture defines that as a rebirth, a going from dead in sins to alive in Jesus Christ. And humility Gentleness, patience, peace, and love are the natural outworkings of that life transformation. So can you honestly 
say this morning that others in your family and in your church family would describe you that way as one who stands united with other believers that is characterized by these truths, whose position in Christ has led you to be united in the church around the gospel message? Are you living in light of your calling in Christ? Has your position in Christ caused you to love each other in the church and to bear with one another in all things because you have something in common that you do not have with non-believers? So firstly, as we conclude, is your position in Christ Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Christ for salvation? If not, that is my prayer, and I know the prayer of this church for you today. Secondly, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, if you have been made right with God through Jesus Christ, Are you working every day to stand united with other believers, to love each other, to be characterized by patience and peace and humility and gentleness? As we seek to grow together as followers of Christ, let's make every effort, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this opportunity to gather with other like-minded believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, what a joy it is to fellowship with, with others that have gone from death to life. Lord, with others that know the joy of salvation, of forgiveness of sins, of a restored relationship with God the Father, the creator of all things. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to follow you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the focus and the desire to live in light of that calling. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a new position, a new status in Jesus Christ. And we pray for your help under the guidance of your Holy Spirit living in us to live in light of that calling. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to guide our time of worship this morning, that this would be a joyous time, a time of celebration, a time of worship, a time of focusing on you, Lord, a time of challenge. May you continually challenge us from your word by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.